Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and greetings from the Army War College. We're so happy to have you join us today on the War Room podcast. My name is Jacqueline Witt. I'm the War Room podcast editor and professor of strategy here at the War College. Today we bring you another episode in our Dusty Shelves series where we explore stories about historical artifacts and think about how they might apply to the present. This episode is about National Security Council Report 68, or as it's more commonly known, NSC 68, which is a vitally important statement about U.S. national security policy during the Truman administration as the U.S. enters the Cold War. Joining me in the studio is Dr. Tammy Biddle. Dr. Biddle is a professor of history and national security strategy at the Army War College. She's a much longer job title than I do, uh, which she's called her professional home for more than 15 years. She has written and published widely on the history of air power and military history, as well as the problems of strategy and strategic education. Jacqueline, I'm delighted to be here. So, Tammy, without further ado, let's talk about NSC-68. Which is a fascinating document. It was written in the early months of 1950. The National Security Council itself was actually still a relatively new institution. It had been developed or stood up during the National Security Act of 1947, so it was just a few years old. And basically, it had a very small staff at that time. And papers would come in, usually from the Joint Chiefs or from the State Department, uh, that were pertaining to national security, uh, foreign policy, military strategy in general. And this one was profound, and it had a big impact. So you said that lots of papers would come into the National Security Council. Uh, So can you explain to us what exactly is a National Security Council paper? Do they have um, authority or significance? or what weight do they have? And how did this one sort of bubble up to be one of the most important and widely recognized documents of this kind? Yes, it does. This one was written by Paul Nitze, who had just been uh, named to head the policy planning staff at the State Department. Dean Acheson was Secretary of State. He had recently taken over from George Marshall. And this document was requested by the president as a review of national strategy at a particularly interesting and fraught moment in time in American history. It had followed a series of crises starting in 1948 with the Czech coup uh, and then the Berlin blockade and then the Soviet atomic bomb in 1949 and the fall of China to Mao's communists in 1949. So with that string of setbacks and, and deep concerns for American national security, the president was interested in taking a big look at America's position in the world, at our uh, instruments of power for influencing uh, national security and international security going forward. And Nitsi was anxious to do this. He was young, he was ambitious, he was very bright, well-educated. He had come from Wall Street but had done government service during World War II and was interested in continuing to do government service. His view was um, to lean more forward, especially in light of these crises. And what he was doing was basically arguing a lawyer's brief for why the United States should build up its instruments of power, particularly its military instruments, uh, and 
be more robust and more forward-leaning um, than had been the case between 1945 and 1950. Um, and basically, the United States had come out of World War II obviously extremely powerful and having a very large military, but we were casting about and having a domestic debate about our role in the world and the degree to which we should really step forward and be global leaders, and also the degree to which we should maintain a large standing military, um, a large air force. There were ongoing debates about the nature of the military forces that we should have. And so this document is really an attempt to address all of those things in this moment where uh, the country is trying to decide how to respond, what level of world leadership to ex accept, and uh, how to go forward in the aftermath of, of debates that have been really raging since 1946. NHTSA was the successor to George Kennan, who had been the previous policy planning staff head. Kennan was an intellectual. He was a Russian specialist in the State Department and uh, a, a brilliant man who had observed Russian and Soviet um, decision-making and politics from up close for a long time. He had been the author of The Long Telegram in 1946, which was the first real attempt to figure out what to do about an increasingly difficult Soviet Union in the aftermath of World War II. Uh, that document was written in 1946, following a speech that Stalin had given, and the United States was casting about for a policy, and this was the first real articulation of the containment policy uh, that becomes very important for the United States in the Cold War. Basically, Kennan says that a lot of Soviet behavior is being driven by their inherent insecurity, their sense of illegitimacy domestically, and their need to argue to their own population that they have external enemies and that they need to address them. And so Cannon's line was, we have to be vigilant, we have to contain this power, but we shouldn't overreact because overreacting will ultimately be self-defeating. Kennan went on to write that again, uh, essentially for the public, in a document called The X Article that appeared in Foreign Affairs magazine in 1947. And then a lot of his ideas appeared again in 1948 in National Security Council paper 20-4. So the containment policy was out there and it was well established by this point, but Nitsi was going to add some twists to it. Okay, so we have this this evolution, this idea that a that a policy uh, emerging into a strategy is is sort of changing over time. Nietzsche is is taking what Kennan is, has done before the groundwork that's been laid and adding to it. Some people would say maybe militarizing containment in a way. How does Nietzsche go about making the case? What what does the document sort of look like? How you know how long is it? Is it um, if, if people are unfamiliar with the with the thing itself. Yeah, it depends on how it's printed, but it, <laughs> it, it ends up being somewhere between 50 and 70 pages. Um, it's a long document, there's no question. Um, most national security papers are not that long, um, but Nitsi was trying to do something that he thought was incredibly important. Um, it, it is a more forward-leaning document uh, certainly. And it's something that Kennan was not entirely comfortable with. Kennan was not asked for his opinion. Kennan had uh, stepped down as head of policy planning staff. 
And Nitzi did not go back and ask Kennan really for his opinion. Nitzi set out on his own and took his own path. And he was working uh, under Dean Acheson, who was more hardline than Kennan, more conservative, more inclined to be aggressive, forward-leaning, to rely on military instruments over economic and political instruments. Um, and so Nitzi was really gathering like-minded folks around him. He was a wonderful master of the bureaucratic black arts as well. So what he did was to really find folks who were like-minded. They worked on this document, but it very much has Nitzi's voice and it very much has Acheson's voice. And it is basically saying we are at a crossroads. This is a particularly fraught moment in American history where we have to step up to the plate, accept world leadership, bolster our uh, instruments of power, particularly our, our military instruments. We were looking at the Soviet Union at that point, which had not demobilized in the rapid way that we had after World War II. And so they still had a lot of divisions in Europe and there was a sense that if the Soviets wanted to come westward, all they really needed to do was to roll in that direction and there was nothing to stop them. Do they consider this from the from a Soviet point of view? Because the the trend line from the American point of view, I think like you pointed out, from nineteen forty five to nineteen fifty looks so anxiety producing and so yes. terrifying. So many things that happen. But it also seems that you could you could flip the script and from the Soviet point of view, things also look maybe pessimistic and a little bit terrifying with the Berlin airlift and the formation of NATO, that there have been other things that um, that maybe the, the Soviets are feeling insecure and, yes. and terrified as well. Is there any sense of that in NFC 68 or do we get that from other from other places? There's not much of, of that in NSC 68. Nitzi stays pretty clearly on his um, his own brief, and he's, he's, again, very proactive, very forward-leaning. But I think if you try to look at this from the Soviet perspective of 1949, 1950, there are a lot of reasons why they did feel insecure, why they felt as though the Americans were a challenge to them. Um, and we can just begin by looking at what they had gone through in World War II with the loss of, of over 20 million people, a terrible hard battle, um, and they had come out of that needing to basically reconstruct their entire country. They were very nervous about a repetition of that. They wanted to have a buffer in Eastern Europe, uh, and so the Eastern Europe, what became the Iron Curtain in Churchill's language, um, was for them the Iron Curtain that would keep a resurgent Germany from attacking them again. So they were determined to have uh, friendly governments on their border. Now, of course, from our perspective, that looked very worrisome and intimidating. We wanted to have democracies in those areas. We wanted Czechoslovakia and Poland to be democracies. Certainly, those countries had helped us fight in World War II. We were very anxious for them to be rewarded for their efforts in World War II, and now they were coming under communist influence, and that was deeply disappointing and frightening to us. And so this is a situation where it's kind of a perfect storm for the two nations, each of them seeing lots of uh, reason to fear the other. But the Soviets looked at us and saw us uh, acting in the world. We were consolidating the um, Western portions of Germany that had been under Western occupation and doing currency reform there, which was very frightening to the Soviets. 
and that's when they really decided that they needed to, to seal off their portion of occupied Germany, which was in the east. Uh, so they saw us as a dynamic force. They saw capitalism as a dynamic and very threatening force. From their perspective, they were afraid of it. They were afraid of its threat to the global communist movement and le the legitimacy of leadership in the Soviet Union. So yes, from the Soviet perspective, and, and of course we were establishing bases around the world. We had built a very large military. We had atomic bombs. Um, obviously, the Soviets had just built one in 1949, but we had many more. We had a, a head start. So there was a lot of reason why, I think, from a Soviet perspective, they were feeling fear of us. So in lots of ways, there was a security dilemma going on here where the Americans, looking at the events of occurring in Europe, were afraid of what the Soviets were doing. And the Soviets looking at us and our active capitalism, our positive uh, view of the world and our, our assertiveness in the world, they were looking at us and seeing a force that, that would be very um, detrimental to their aspirations in the world. So what what is, given this global situation, what is Nietzsche's answer to this? What does, what does an American strategy responding to this global environment uh, look like? What does NSC-68 actually recommend? Okay, it, it recommends building up, first and foremost, American military forces and building them up across the board. There had been debates over how to do that. We had turned away from universal military training right after World War II and instead opted to put a greater emphasis on the Air Force and on atomic weapons. And that was a way of, of getting a lot of bang for the buck. Um, but it was also something that created a situation where I think Nitsi felt one could be salami sliced, one could um, find situations that would fall under the nuclear threshold where the Soviets could have their way and we would have no answer to it. So basically he said, we need an across the board buildup of our conventional forces and in fact our, our uh, nuclear forces as well. But in general, we need to have robust conventional forces. We need to spend more on defense. This was a period when Truman was very concerned about running deficits and Nitsi was saying, look, I think we can afford it. I think we can afford to run some deficits uh, on behalf of our national security. The economy is robust enough. During World War II, we built a lot of weapons, but the American populace didn't really suffer terribly, even as we were investing a lot of money in weaponry. And so we need to make some of those kinds of investments again and not be so afraid of deficits. And so it was a big brief to, to lean forward in terms of building our military. But also that was to give us more coercive leverage. Nitsi felt that in order to stay secure and to keep the country secure, especially in the face of these Soviet challenges and threats, we were going to have to have a wide array of instruments of power, not only um, economic and political, the kinds that um, people like Kennan had emphasized and were working very well in things like the Marshall Plan of 1947-1948, but Nitsi wanted more of a hard edge uh, set of instruments. He wanted coercive leverage uh, that we didn't really then have. This, the US military was small in 1948, 1949, and, and Nitsi really wanted to build it, build it up. And so that was his primary answer. Build up the military, uh, build up our presence in the world, make the Soviets aware that we will 
uh, push back if they lean in, that we do intend to challenge them around the world, and that we have the means to do so. Great. So what is it, is it too much of a stretch to say that if this is written in early 1950, that the North Korean invasion of South Korea um, sort of galvanizes opinion or, or makes NSC 68 seem maybe more prescient and more relevant than it, it might have otherwise? Yeah, it really does. Even after the document became available in April, it was written between in, in the early months of 1950, and then it was available in April, and it was being briefed to senior people in the White House. And it came as a shock to some of them, because some of them had been excluded. Nitzi had realized he was going to have bureaucratic enemies. And so people like the cost-cutting Lewis Johnson uh, in the Department of Defense um, was not really brought in to the discussions, um, because Nitzi didn't want a cost cut. He wanted to spend money. And so when this document arrives, it's something of a surprise. Um, but there's a there's a big debate taking place, and it's coming out of the, the four shocks that I mentioned. But certainly when the Korean War occurs, when the North uh, crosses basically and, and drives the South Korean forces down into the, the very bottom of the peninsula, Truman says, okay, um, I accept the recommendations and the, the assumptions, the premises, and the arguments of NSC 68, even though right after the document was published, he was not sure. He was so concerned about finance and about spending too much money and running deficits that he, he was being pushed in the direction of NSC 68, but somewhat reluctantly. And even though I think it's very likely that we would have gone in this direction, certainly the Korean War accelerated it and really opened the floodgates and took all the constraints off. And it really enabled Nitsi to get what he wanted. And thereafter, Truman defense budgets went way up. Uh, and also, a lot of influence began to really flow to the Pentagon. I would say that this document is in many ways the beginning of what we now are familiar with, which is a fairly small State Department and a very big and very well-resourced Pentagon. I think a lot of that traces back to this document. It's, it's, it's almost a little ironic that the document is originated in, state. in the State Department, but yes. it, it has these long-term consequences. And I think I like this idea that we see the global environmental context and the particular crisis that maybe sort of galvanizes and pushes it through the policy process and the system and the ramifications on budget, but then also the long-term effects on national security strategy and culture, really, uh, about how the American system sort of views the different players and the different actors and the role of the National Security Council uh, as well. So we've discussed the story of NSC 68's creation, but that was over 70 years ago. Uh, so what relevance does the document have today? Why is it that you think senior leaders should still read it closely and study it and understand what it, what it has to say? I think in lots of ways, it's because of the way that Nitsi puts it together. He addresses so many things that are kind of critical questions, ongoing, long-term questions that are at the heart of national security. He addresses geopolitics. He basically says we cannot have a continental power sort of sitting astride the world, 
um, marginalizing the great sea powers. Um, he speaks to economics, so there's a huge debate in his mind between, or, or ongoing fight between command economies and free economies, the capitalist system and open trading and everything that basically he believes in, which is antithetical to everything that the Soviets believe in. So economics is a huge theme running through this. Ideology is a huge theme running through this, so we're pitting uh, the sense of American individualism and American emphasis on independence against a much more collective sensibility uh, of the communist mindset. There are religious overtones. Um, Nitsi makes reference to the way in which the communists denigrate religion. There are, it's, it's all about culture. There's so much nuance in it. There's so much um, Nitzi goes back to first principles, he goes back to foundational documents and tries to argue uh, why we're in jeopardy, um, basically because the Soviets are challenging all of those most foundational ideas in our original documents. And so his case is really urgent, but it's also, it, it has echoes right through the decades and into the 21st century because we're still wrestling with all of these very same questions. Obviously our threats are different, but the challenges that are posed are still challenges being posed on these same fronts, geopolitics, ideology, economics, freedom. Um, so it's really a timeless document. Given the, its timelessness, do you do you think we could see a twenty first century version of NSC sixty eight, or is is there something that's, if this is a sort of gold standard of an articulation of a threat and of a strategy and of a way forward in terms of policy, is there a reason we haven't we haven't seen an equivalent? This is a question that that the national. National security community has been asking itself for a long time, really since the end of the Cold War. I think probably the reason that we haven't seen anything quite this coherent and forceful is because Nitzi had the great good fortune of focusing all of his attention on one enemy. Um, the threat environment that we face now is much more diverse, it's fractured, um, it's a lot harder to write with the kind of powerful central focus and cohesiveness that Nitsi was able to attain when he was writing strictly about the Soviet threat. So I think that's where the struggle has been. We've, we've also been trying to figure out our role, I think, since the end of the Cold War, as we have first been a unilateral power in the world. There's, we were operating in a kind of unipolar system for a while, and then we've now moved into a situation where we have peer competitors, um, China increasingly, Russia much to a much, less ex much lesser extent, but it's still able uh, to pose some, some very interesting challenges to us in Europe and challenges in places where we have very profound and deep interests. So I think um, we're still struggling with, with our role in the world right now. But perhaps there's an opportunity, I think, for some very bright, young, driven person to sit back and take a, a broad uh, look at things, uh, start from the principles of, of American values and American national interests and move from there into a coherent strategy about how we would address those uh, challenges over the next 10 to 20 some years.
I always like to remind my students that George Cannon was in his early 40s when he wrote the long telegram and the yes. X article. And so so maybe the author of the next of the great, next great national security document uh, is is in these halls. That would even, be wonderful. Even now. Uh, <laughs> it could be. So one one can hope, right? Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for joining us if you're listening uh, along on your commute or at home. And we'll see you on the next episode of the War Room Podcast soon. Thank you, Jacqueline. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.